Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 15th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. It was at about a quarter past nine Irish time yesterday evening that a serious incident took place involving members of the 121st Infantry Battalion Unifil. The Irish Defence Forces say that a convoy of two armoured utility vehicles, AUVs, carrying eight personnel travelling to Beirut, came under small arms fire. Four personnel were taken to the Rai Hospital near Sidon as a result of the incident. One soldier was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital and another has undergone surgery and is in a serious condition. The other two soldiers are being treated for minor injuries. Let's go to Brussels where the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, is attending the EU Council Summit together with on Taoiseach. Good morning, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. The death of one of our peacekeepers in Lebanon, it really is a tragic piece of news for us all to wake up to this, this morning. Well, we all woke up to this this morning. I think everybody was absolutely shocked, um, numb, um, very, very sad. Um, our peacekeepers have really enhanced the reputation of this country over many decades. Uh, They've done so well. Um, Their name is so well known and so well respected uh, right across the world. Um, They have really helped keep societies together in very, very fragile circumstances. But it's only when this happens and this absolute tragedy happens uh, that we realise and remember quite how dangerous that work uh, that they do is. And my thoughts, sympathies, prayers are with the to see soldier, the family and friends, the colleagues, the, the hundreds of Irish soldiers that are in Lebanon, uh, and indeed the family of the, um, the, the, the seriously injured soldier as well. Uh, we're very, very concerned about it, and we're still getting, uh, obviously, information. I think all of us, that's the case at the moment about this, and families, as we speak, probably are still uh, getting information as well. Okay. What do we know at this stage, or what has been established at this stage, uh, about uh, the attack on Irish forces? I, I don't think that's really for me um, to discuss because I don't have first-hand knowledge of it. Um, we do know, I mean, Taoiseach has spoken about this this morning. I know that Taoiseach was in touch with Minister Coveney and indeed with the Chief of Staff. Um, and obviously there will be a full investigation and already uh, there's preliminary work 
uh, going on uh, to find out exactly what happened. And there will be a full investigation. But I suppose at this particular moment, um, our initial reaction has has to be to support the family uh, and uh, friends of the deceased, uh, the colleagues who are there, and indeed particularly the colleague uh, soldier who's seriously injured. I think that's where everybody's focus is uh, at this particular moment in time. Okay, and he remains critical after surgery. I, 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 I know that from, 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 from what's been said publicly on the news. I don't have any further information on that. I know that Minister Coveney uh, is keeping in direct contact uh, with the army in relation to that, as are the army themselves, uh, to, 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 to make sure uh, that the care uh, is, being, is, is being given there that's required. Okay, the Defence Forces has uh, taken the decision not to release uh, the names of uh, the soldiers involved in this incident at this time, but I I gather by now the families have been informed. Oh yes, the families will have been informed by now, but you you know like everything else in this country, there's presumably extended family friends you need to hear before, uh, before the rest of the public does. So this happened at whatever time last night, um, news is filtering, uh, all through the middle of the night and I have no doubt that um, there are possibly people there who, who know the soldier who don't yet know um, just in the nature of these things uh, when they happen overnight so I think the defence forces are being uh, correct there uh, to make sure that um, everyone who, who needs to know on a, on a personal basis uh, knows uh, before indeed any of the rest of us do. Okay, it's a, an unbelievably difficult time for the families uh, I, I'm sure uh, given the distance uh, between where they are now and uh, their loved ones, who in one case is uh, deceased, uh, another in a critical condition, uh, and the others uh, who have gone through uh, a very dangerous situation. Uh, but uh, to add uh, to that trauma that people must be feeling, uh, there's reports that this was videoed and that those videos are on social media. Well, the less said about that, the better, and I don't propose to comment on that at all. Uh, we need to keep our thoughts, our prayers, our practical support as, as a government and as, a, and as an army uh, focus on those who need it at this particular time, and that's going to be the families uh, and those colleagues who remain behind and who have to continue to do uh, their duties in what we what we are reminded of today is incredibly difficult circumstances, and they do that uh, with such pride. And it, 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 the enhancement that that gives not just our defence forces, but the entire country uh, gets a reputational boost from the work uh, that our soldiers do. Uh, it really, you couldn't calculate it, actually. Uh, and now we see uh, how, 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 how dangerous it is and, and, and the risks that those uh, soldiers take every single day. Are you hearing in the briefings that you're getting, Minister, that those risks will have to be reassessed and security looked at? Uh, I think the Irish uh, Defence Forces have been acting as peacekeepers in the Lebanon since 1978. This would be the 48th death, I think. It's a very rare incident in terms of Irish troops overseas. Uh, But did this come as a surprise or Will Irish soldiers face more of the same? Well, look, I mean, there will be another time, maybe even today, to discuss that, but that will be from the Minister of Defence and the Army itself who are best placed to discuss that. What I can say is that, yes, we have... We have lost, um, you know, 48 soldiers at this particular time uh, in Lebanon. Uh, But the last two decades have been, uh, as I understand it, have been... um, we, We haven't had fatalities. This is the first time in quite some time. Um, so this is a particular shock uh, and a terrible tragedy and the investigation will take place 
and the full consequences that flow from that will be uh, absolutely considered by the government. But I think at this particular hour of the morning is not the time to talk about that. Okay, Minister, uh, I understand how busy you are there at uh, the EU Council Summit. The Taoiseach's last uh, summit, uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing much more from Brussels uh, throughout the day, not just about uh, the terrible loss of one of the Irish Defence Forces, uh, but I'm sure that there's much more on the agenda. Thank you indeed for taking some time out uh, of your busy schedule to join us on the programme. Again, our deepest sympathies to the families, friends and colleagues, soldiers and all of our Defence Forces. Uh, who are absolutely shocked and grieving today. And I know that's echoed by many of our listeners. Thank you indeed. Uh, that's the Minister for European Affairs, Fianna Fáil TD, for me, these Thomas Byrne. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we can speak uh, to Independent TD for Louth and East Meath, Peter Fitzpatrick. A very good morning to you. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Perhaps uh, we can begin with uh, the death of one of our peacekeepers in the Lebanon and indeed uh, the concern for uh, another one of uh, the members of uh, that battalion that came under fire last night. Uh, This is something I'm sure that will shake the nation. Uh, You're a former member of uh, the Defence Forces yourself. What are your thoughts on this? Michael, as you said this morning, it's it's the 40th death in in, in, in this since 1978. And First of all, Michael, I want to give my deepest sympathy to the family uh, of, of, of the soldier who has lost his life in the Lebanon there last night. Uh, I'm sure, uh, and you were talking about Thomas Bond there a few moments ago, I'm sure the, uh, the army has contacted uh, the, 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 the soldier who was killed, family, and, and, and uh, to be honest with you, it's, it's the last thing anybody wants. Like, there's, there's 333 uh, uh, soldiers who were right there last November, part of the uh, part of the 121st Infantry Battalion to go to the lab there, and, and they were... They were you know, their, their family and friends are up at the airport and waving goodbye and hoping to see them in six months' time. And all of a sudden, this 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 thing really happened, and these things shouldn't happen. Like uh, uh, there was a uh, there was two comrades of these uh, armor utility vehicles. Uh, when I was in the army, Michael, I was in one of them uh, armor utility vehicles, and they were well sheltered, well protected, and everything else. And and you know, a convoy of uh, of two. And I just don't know how how this actually happened. That and just my thoughts and prayers about the family there at the moment and there. Uh, Michael, there's nothing really can say at the moment because uh, I, I, I don't think whatever I'm going to say will help or relieve the family in that day. I just, just said that, that phone call coming to that family this morning, my heart to me might even thinking about it as such. I mean, like, uh, these Irish soldiers are so well trained and, you know, and they do really help, in, you know, you know, keeping peace in the world and everything else. And honestly, it's a really, really sad day for the, for the, you know, for the Irish army and for the families and everything else. Michael, mm. nothing more I can really say, Michael, my, my yeah. heart to me, Michael. Okay. Uh, can you tell me a, a little bit about the mindset of uh, young personnel when they're deployed overseas like that? Uh, is it in the back of their mind that this is a possibility? Oh, it is, Michael. Michael, as I said, yeah, I was a member of the 27th Battalion for three years. And the training they get, Michael, is, is second to none. And that's supposedly one of the best, you know, equipped uh, training uh, uh, armies in the world. Uh, Michael, like, like you know, when you when you do your training, you know these these, these situations do come up and out there. But when he heard uh, when he heard this morning in the radio station, like uh, like uh, the, the, uh, these these uh, armored utility vehicles were, were, were both separated as such, and they were they were surrounded by a crowd and everything else. I tell you, I'd say the, the four personnel that was in, in in that vehicle there this morning, Michael. I, I honestly, I just like no matter what experience you have. You, 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 just, you just couldn't. You, you can't really imagine what actually happened there, and, and for one of them to be killed, as such, Michael, and, and another one 
seriously injured in hospital that day. Like, like you know, like and these people are still over there at the moment, and like you know, their friend, their colleague is. It's dead there at the moment, and it, Michael, it must be a nod. Like, no mm. matter what kind of trend you do, Michael, it, there's nothing can can you, know, you can imagine could it could help you in, in that situation whatsoever. It's a very, uh, very very sad situation, Michael. And my my, my thoughts, my my my, my problem with Michael is that as a member of the 27 Battalion, I know the members of the 27 Battalion is out there at the moment, and, it's, and I'm just praying, Michael. You know, it's, 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 like, you know, and, and just hope, that, hope, just just, just hope, Michael. That, like, I'm not going to say it's not, not someone from the 27 Battalion, but it, it is somebody. And like, you know, I'm sure there's families in 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 the surrounding areas at the moment. At the moment, really, really worried and concerned who it is. And all it's just, all I just hope, Michael, is that I just it's a, it's a serious bad situation, Michael. Because like, you know, words words just can't describe what's what's actually happening there, Michael. Isn't it really horrible to think oh. uh, that when? Uh, the Irish soldiers were ambushed like this uh, and um, gangs started shooting at them uh, and uh, killing one, uh, almost killing another, uh, one man fighting by for his life by uh, all accounts uh, and others injured uh, and the terror of all of that uh, which is a million miles from the comfortable chairs we're sitting in uh, at the moment uh, but to think that somebody filmed it uh, and uh, that uh, it is being displayed victoriously uh, on social media uh, it must be just dreadful for the families it's an absolute disgrace Michael and uh, the, the last publicity we give these people you know, these are, these are, I used to call them keyboard warriors or something like that to me it's, it's, it's absolutely disgraceful at the moment it's, as you said here a family has been notified this morning of the death of their, their son or daughter. We don't know who it is at the moment. Is, but I'll tell you one thing, Michael, like, uh, like, like I was in the army and my parents and my wife would be very concerned about you. But, you, like, you know, you, you'd be hoping that your loved one goes away and comes home safe and everything else. But there's, there's a family in Ireland today that's really received really, really, really bad news. And just as I say, Michael, like, I'd be honest, Michael, I can't really say much more because mm. uh, I was in that position before and I, I, I wouldn't like my family or anything like that this to happen it's just just my thoughts and oh, they can, the family must be in a really really bad way at the moment is and I'm sure the family knows at this stage at the moment is and I'm sure there'll be a lot of rumours come in where the person's from and where the person's not from but the situation at the moment is as I said yeah, listen let, let's all let's all think about the poor young person who's been who's been killed I mean, like it's, it's, it's serious Michael okay yeah our sympathies to the families Peter Fitzpatrick, uh, you were scheduled to talk to us this morning anyhow uh, because uh, of uh, the motion of confidence in uh, Darrell O'Brien, the Minister for Housing. Uh, maybe you could uh, explain uh, why you voted confidence in the Minister. You told the doll, as we heard on the programme yesterday, that you felt the Minister was doing a good job. My problem was, Michael, is that the Minister has been there for the last three years. Uh, the government has committed to spend four billion a year. Uh, I have to face my constituency in my office every every day, Michael. I, 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 I do my clinics in the Monday and Friday, and the, the biggest concern at the moment is, is, is housing and people will be getting rented accommodation, and it, it, it is in a really really bad way. And I did I did I do admit, it, Michael, that there is an emergency there at the moment. Is but my problem there at the moment is that uh, Minnesota buying has come in the last three years, and I, I think people do seem to forget. Like we had an international financial crisis. We had the Brexit. We had the pandemic. Then all, all of a sudden we had inflation. We had the war in Ukraine having at the moment. And to be quite honest, Michael, uh, like you know, like no matter who came into this job, it's going to be a very, very tough job. I do agree this government has been uh, has been in the goal for the last eleven years. But this this situation was 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 to do with Darrell O'Brien. And and and, and in fairness, Mike, I, I've contacted and I've spoken to Darrell O'Brien on numerous occasions. 
and uh, I find him. I find him to be open and transparent. He does realise that not everybody is 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 is, 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 is uh, feeling the effect of such. But th- things are bad at the moment. But Michael, I just think is that if we go back and start all over again, I think it'd be, it'd be absolutely worse. And what really annoys me about the Oireachtas is, and I just said, why can we all not just sit down and work together? And I, I honestly do believe that if we all work together, we can get the situation sorted out. Now, I, I criticise the government, I criticise the local authorities, but over the last number of months, Michael, I can see a big difference happening. Like, for example, there, like, Michael, I got a phone call from a consistent of mine there last Friday, a lady in the dog. And she asked me, please, Peter, I've got a homeless person in my house at the moment, can you please help me? And I said, what's the position? He jumped off the Castleton Bridge and he tried to commit suicide. He went up to the cross lane, psychiatric patient in Jordan, and, and they said there was nothing wrong with him. He's back now, she has him in his house, and he's in a serious bad way. But she agreed to keep him in the house till Monday. So he came down to my house, um, sorry, he came down to my constituency office there last Monday. Michael is one of the nicest, most genuine. He admitted that he has a problem. He has a drugs and alcohol problem. His nanny died a few months ago there, and he went in a drink. He lost his job. He said, listen, his family and friends, mm-hmm. everybody tried to help him out, but he's just a lot of, he's in a lost place. And for the last three or four weeks, he, he, he's off the drink, he's off the drugs. He has nowhere to go. So I, like, I don't like him. I rang the Light County Council, and I, I rang the homeless, and I said, listen, please can help this individual. Michael, within 10 minutes, Michael, they had accommodation for him, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and unlimited accommodation for him. I asked him had he any clothes or money, he had nothing. I took him to my office and he walked into the homeless, a girl called Sonia in the office, the homeless, and, and in the hall. And I have to be honest, Michael, the first thing she gave him was clothes, and she offered him a bit of food, and she offered him a job, now, it was a voluntary job, just to keep his mind occupied. This young fellow has a safe pass, he drives a teleporter. He, he said, he's pleased at the moment, I'm trying, I'm trying four or five different contacts in the area, can we get his man a job? He's in an emergency accommodation. I know, I know at the homeless figures at the moment are 11,500, mm. 3,500 of these are, uh, are children. But the homeless people, they, these are people that are in the shelter accommodation, emergency accommodation, and there is people in the streets. But listen, the most important, he said to me, all he wanted was a roof over head. All mm. he wanted was a pillow to put his head down at night time. That's all he wanted. And, and it's a remarkable you, story. Uh, I think we're all taken aback by what you've uh, just told us. A remarkable story uh, in so many ways. Uh, such a, a tragic start. Uh, and uh, congratulations on no, no, Mike, Mike, finding Mike, a solution not, for that I, man. I but there's so many people office, looking for a solution. Even just to do one wee thing to help him. Hmm. I, I will be honest with you. Like you, you, rang, you, you rang the local authority six months ago. This might not happen because... But Michael, to 60 years. Is it really that better, though? I mean, there's there's young people who will never get on the housing ladder. They'll just never be able to afford to buy a house because of how prices have increased and how they've increased in line with rents, which are higher than they've ever been before. And we've uh, 11,500 people uh, who are homeless, uh, like that man. Uh, 3,500 children in emergency accommodation for Christmas. Uh, is the proof in not in the pudding when it comes uh, to assessing the performance of a minister? And that's a pretty dire record to stand over. But you say he's doing a good job. Michael, I'm, I'm just trying to explain, Michael, is we had a pandemic for nearly three years now, Michael. Construction closed down. We had a serious shortage of apprenticeships. Uh, like, what we're trying to do is, like, like it's a long-term plan. As, as I said, not everybody is feeling, is feeling the, the, the benefit at the moment, Michael. But I'm just going to say a moment at the moment is uh, Darrell Bryan, for the last three years, has, has been in a very bad situation. 
But what I'm just saying, Michael, is like, we are all trying to do our best. Like, you know, like, as I said, 11,500 people homeless and 3,500 are children. But what I'm trying to say at the moment, and like, like, even for example, like, I have people there recently who uh, the landlords came and wanted to sell the house. And I went to, I went to Darrell Bryan. So far in the last 12 months, the government has, has bought 800 uh, houses from landlords who have put their houses up for sale and the people in the houses were half applicants. And these people won't be homeless. So the local authorities uh, bought 800 houses in the last 12 months. That's 12, that's, that's 800 okay. families that could actually stay in the like, okay. city. Can I, I, I ask you just one last question because we're so tight on time? And could I ask you to answer in less than a minute? Tell us about the modular housing in Dundalk. Uh, you had proposed it. The minister went to Dundalk. Uh, you told the Dáil uh, the other day. So what's the situation now? Is that a project that's going to go ahead? No, Michael, but I told the doll the other day that the minister is coming. He's coming. On, he's originally coming on the 7th of December, but they, they called a cabinet meeting that day and they cancelled it, and he's coming now on the 10th of January, right? Michael, uh, we, we, we have, we have a, a developer that has planned admission for over 500 houses at the moment, right? And he's willing to allow 200 or, 200 or more of them houses to be modular uh, houses. The minister has agreed to come to the dog, Michael, to have a look, to talk to the developer. And like, I, I, we, we had a meeting during the week there with the Lake County Council, the Oireachtas members last Tuesday. And the Lake County Council are up, they, they are interested also in putting these modular houses there as well. So I'm, I'm speaking to Darwin Bryan. So Darwin Bryan will be in contact with the local authorities. He will be in contact with the developer. Michael, as I said in your program, Michael, is, uh, Irish people that in the council list at the moment uh, are very, very keen in these modular homes. Okay. They'd rather modular homes than into a flat or, or apartment. It's taken a, a step forward, obviously, but continues to be a, a work in progress. I have to leave it there. I hate to cut it short, Peter, but I have to leave it there. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Independent TD for Loud and East Mead, Peter Fitzpatrick. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I wish to update the House that the Government yesterday approved a new consolidated planning and development bill which will be referred to the Housing Joint Oireachtas Committee for consideration in the new year. The bill will implement one of the key measures in the action plan for Umbora Planola, which was agreed by government on the 4th of October, and that is to move to a new organisational structure for Umbora Planola to separate the decision-making and the corporate and organisational roles. Umbora Planola will be named on Commission Planola, to bring greater clarity to the understanding of these distinct roles, the new bill contains a number of provisions reflecting the new organisational structure and will clearly out- outline the role of the planning commissioners who will be responsible for all decision-making regarding consents and applications made to it. There will be a chief planning commissioner and up to 14 planning commissioners. These will be full-time posts and will replace the current chairperson and board member roles. That's the Minister for Housing, Darrell O'Brien, speaking in the Dáil yesterday. It's a new revamped uh, onboard Planola, a new name on Commission Planola, hardly the most inventive of names, uh, but uh, it's uh, the structure of uh, the board uh, that seems to be of significant concern to politicians uh, because they'll be nominated by the Minister and uh, there is some concern about who will end up on that board and what influence politicians will have on the planning result, uh, on the planning process as a result. There's also some concern then uh, about how people will be restricted in terms terms of taking objections. Uh, residents' associations, as you've been hearing, may not be able to take uh, an objection against uh, planning 
uh, the um, piece of planning that has uh, been uh, subjected uh, or indeed uh, that could uh, affect uh, some NGOs, non-governmental organisations as well. You'd have to ask yourself what would have happened in uh, the past with uh, the Mead Wind Farms uh, and uh, the Mead Wind Information Group or the North-South Interconnector and uh, the North East Pylon Pressure Group or indeed if the same bypass would have gone ahead uh, if uh, the groups that we're talking about restricting now were able uh, weren't able to take uh, objections uh, during that time uh, we're scheduled to speak with uh, the social democrats spokesperson on housing about this Keno Callahan uh, but uh, unfortunately uh, we're not making the connection uh, so uh, we may come back to that a, a little bit later on in the program now uh, there were a number of calls that came to us uh, yesterday that uh, I said I'd come to and uh, I will come to them uh, a, a little bit later on in the program some people were a bit out of sorts with uh, some of of the comments that were made uh, but we'll come back to them uh, uh, as I say uh, today on the programme we just ran out of time but an email that I, I wanted to read to, to you yes and again we didn't get the time for it uh, good to have the opportunity now uh, it comes from Alice who says to say I'm disgusted and annoyed is to put it mildly I'm from Dundalk uh, and the government announced in September that there would be a once-off payment to people on disability invalidity pensions etc to help with their fuel bills over the winter because of inflation and the payment was to be made from the 14th of November. Well Michael, I've been on an invalidity payment for approximately 17 years as I've multiple sclerosis, a heart condition and PVD. So I was waiting on the payment to come through but it didn't arrive. I decided that I would ring the invalidity pensions office when the payment didn't come through in the last three weeks. And I rang it today to ask why I didn't get paid to be informed that it's because I turned 66 on the 15th of November. And because I'm 66, I come off the invalidity pension and I go on to the old age pension uh, and that I wasn't entitled to it because I'm now an OAP uh, rather than somebody who's on an invalidity pension. Uh, It's beggar's belief, says Alice. Uh, On the 14th of November, I was still on the invalidity pension as I was 65 years of age, and somebody in a government office then decided that this one is turning 66 tomorrow, so we won't pair. That's the way it seems to me. Uh, And uh, they have the cheek to say that I'm not getting it now because uh, I'm 66. It's a hard pill to swallow, but that's the way it is. She said uh, that you could write a a letter of complaint, but uh, I don't know if it'll make any difference. Well, Alice, thank you indeed. Uh, You did send us a a number and we've been trying to make contact with you. And we've also uh, been uh, trying to email you uh, to get your full details so that we could uh, make an inquiry on your behalf with uh, the Department of Social Protection doesn't seem to add up on the face of it if you qualified uh, on the 14th of November uh, because you were 65 it should follow. I'd have thought that you would have got the payment, uh, but uh, if you didn't, you didn't, and we'd be happy to make that inquiry if you could uh, answer your phone to us or indeed respond to, to the email that you should have received at this stage in response to the email that you sent to us originally. Pat Inad Boy was in touch with us as well, saying that he's sick to the back teeth of hearing about the hospital in Navan, not because he doesn't want to see services retained there, but because he thinks local politicians are just playing political ping-pong 
pong with it. And he wonders why the government can't just come out and say that the HSE has decided to retain service and will be investing whatever money is necessary into Navin to bring it up to uh, date. Why are they bowing to the HSE and allowing the tail to wag the dog? Who's running the country? Is it the government or the HSE? Enough is enough at this stage, he says. We'd some uh, comments then as well following uh, some complaints about the number of refugees uh, that came into the country. And uh, these were the calls that I mentioned at the end of the programme yesterday and said I'd come to today. Uh, one uh, was from the person who was originally in touch and said, please tell Michael I'm not on the dole. Uh, because I said it was all the talk around the local dole office about too many refugees coming into the country, that it was the big mouths and the layabouts who were making a lot of these comments. And, and uh, to some extent, that's true, but it's not everybody on the dole and uh, it's not people uh, who are on the dole who are certain types. Everybody ends up on the dole at some stage. I know I was on the dole uh, at one time uh, for quite a while uh, and uh, it's a very difficult situation. But this caller says, I've never been on the dole. I've worked, uh, I've worked all the way through COVID. I'm still working today. Uh, I, I just want to know why we're allowing unlimited refugees in. Uh, and he cynically left out the fact that I was saying unlimited. Uh, well, I think it's because there's an unlimited amount of people who are at risk of death from war. Uh, and you saw the 13 drones that were shot down in uh, Kiev yesterday and how they could have destroyed so many lives and taken out so many lives. Uh, and I had said that it was the big mouths and the layabouts who talk about the refugees uh, as if, you know, uh, it's got anything to do with their dole payments. It's the big mouths and the layabouts who talked about the vaccine. It's the big mouths and the layabouts who talked about 5G and some of these other conspiracy theories. And our caller got back in touch with us and said, uh, I'm working, uh, but... Uh, I was wrong about the vaccine. I wasn't wrong about the vaccine. It works. Uh, I was wrong about the lockdown. I wasn't wrong about the lockdown. It stopped the spread of the z- disease. And he says, I called the Irish flag a symbol uh, that, that, that it was like a swastika. I never said the Irish flag was like a swastika. Never said that. Uh, I know that there's uh, some people on the internet who are saying that. Uh, I said uh, the Irish flag is like a swastika. Uh, our caller says, Michael Reid is a disgrace and he should be ashamed of himself. Well, if that was true, maybe I would be. Uh, what I said was that it was a disgrace that the Irish flag was being used in the way that it was used as a symbol of hate uh, and that it must have been terrible for people looking out of a window when they were seeking refuge from war fleeing for their lives, hoping that they would survive uh, because of uh, the open arms and the Cade Mille and the warm welcome that they would get here, only to discover people outside saying, go home with Irish flags over their head. Uh, there was another protest, by the way, in East Wall last night. Uh, and a lot of this is being fueled by the Irish right-wing parties. And a lot of these characters are well known to us. We've seen them. They're anti-vaxxers. We've seen them. They're involved in 5G. We've seen them. They're involved in all sorts of conspiracy theories. They had people almost uh, evicted from their homes, if not evicted from their homes, when they were telling them not to pay their mortgages and all of this sort of uh, tin hat stuff. Uh, So uh, when it comes to the Irish flag, it's not like a swastika. But what I was saying was that if you were inside one of those buildings looking at people 
threatening you, telling you to go home with an Irish flag above their head. You could only see it as a symbol of hate in the same way that people would have seen the swastika as a symbol of hate. And what a terrible comparison it is to make. But that is what people are doing to our flag. And you know what? It's my flag. And it's everyone's flag. If you're Irish, it's our flag. And we want our flag back off the fascists and the racists who are using it to fuel hate and this false sense of national spirit. It's just terrible when people do things like that. Tommy was in touch with us about that comment yesterday. He said it was a very sharp sharp comment about people on the dole. Uh, As I say, uh, being on the dole, I I know that not everybody in the dole is a fascist or a racist, but it it does seem that the people who are driving these comments are people uh, who are idle, they're of idle minds, or they think they can make money out of other people's idle minds by drawing into this loop and making themselves celebrities or becoming politicians or whatever their gain is from it or they're just downright fascists. Uh, uh, There are obviously then some people who have genuine concerns, they've serious questions, but they they don't have venom in their blood. They don't have this vile hatred of people because they've come here from a a different country. They just have concerns and they want to know, well, what's going to happen about the doctors? What's going to happen about the social welfare? Are the refugees going to be okay apart from anything else? And these people uh, are in need of our help and at a, a time... Uh, where we're coming into the Christmas period, when we're all meant to be Christian and uh, to show people that we're human. Uh, It's quite ironic that we hear people talking about Catholic Ireland and and that Ireland should be for the Irish. And God forgive the people who feel like that, uh, if if that's what we're hearing from people. But anyway, there were just some of the comments that I didn't come to yesterday. As I said, we didn't have time on the programme yesterday. Uh, We had a little bit more time than I was expecting today. But there you go. We'll uh, hear more about that, I'm sure, later on this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as uh, you've uh, been hearing on Bar Planola, is to be renamed on Commission Planola, but more importantly, it's to be restructured in one of uh, the biggest overhauls of uh, the planning legislation in this country in decades. It needs to be done, the government says, and it will make planning more efficient, but there is some concern. I think we can join Social Democrats spokesperson on housing, Keno Callaghan, now. Now. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. It's not just the way this new board will be structured, it's how members of the board will be appointed that is one of your concerns, I think. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, I think there, I mean, there's two, just to say, there's two pieces of legislation. There's one that went through the all uh, in a rushed fashion uh, yesterday, and then there's a larger uh, planning, uh, new planning bill that we're going to see in the new year. Uh, so in, in terms of the appointment process in Borough Panala, that was dealt with in the Dáil yesterday and we have very strong concerns about that. In 1983, the power for the Minister to appoint people to Borough Panala was removed for some very good reasons. There had been a lot of political interference in terms of who was appointed up until that point and an independent process was put in place. And the bill that was discussed yesterday, you know, gives the minister a lot of discretionary powers in terms of how people would be appointed, uh, doesn't fix them into a particular process or a transparent process and says, look, he could do it this way or he could come up with, uh, you know, whatever uh, process he wants on this. So there isn't the kind of safeguards or 
oversight on that process should be. Now, the Minister says, look, he's not going to, you know, he'll set up a fair process and it will all be fine. But really, those things should be set out in legislation. Mm. Uh, so, you know. And what about the next minister? Any, any future. Can, yeah, exactly. Can you speak for the next minister exactly. or the minister? Uh, there's been some concern this week uh, about uh, appointments to the Electoral Commission, uh, former Fianna Fáil, uh, Minister John Curran and Alex Atwood, uh, West Belfast uh, uh, politician uh, appointed uh, there um, uh, and uh, there's concerns uh, that uh, that's because there were politicians uh, and is that the kind of thing that you're, you'd be concerned with uh, that this minister or another minister may reward people uh, by giving them uh, positions on this new board? Yeah, there could be, it absolutely could be an issue with that and I, I mean the, the a key concern here is I mean the board needs to be balanced, needs to be fair, needs to be independent, it has a quasi-judicial role so everybody you know, the public needs to be able to have confidence in it. And if the appointments were all coming from, you know, a particular viewpoint or from a particular section of the development industry or and people who've worked in it, maybe for large developers, that would obviously undermine uh, confidence in the process. So the the system that's been abolished now did allow for nominations to come from a wide-ranging and diverse uh, range of groups. And I, I think that's definitely should have been reformed and on board and it was needing reform of reform. However, this new system is wide open that it could just now we could see the the members of Umbor Pinala with these, you know, huge decision making powers and huge influence could all be coming from one uh, particular perspective. And certainly the minister with the powers the, the minister's giving himself you know, could be uh, influencing uh, that. And that's and that not the, the way we should be doing legis- legislation. And that this minister be, or another minister could choose people who have a perspective similar to their own. Yeah, and, and the legislation certainly allows for, for that level of discretion and, and that's not the way legislation should be done. It should be robust, it should be, you know, watertight and it should really allow for any type of a minister is in that we'd be assured that this is going to be a good uh, transparent, objective uh, process that we can all stand over. So if there's a change of minister, change of government or whatever, it doesn't doesn't affect that. And uh, I would have thought that should be the very least we should be doing with Umbor Pinola, especially after the uh, scandals of, of this year and the lack of uh, confidence that a lot of people would have in it at, at this point. It does have a very important role and it sets the standards in, in planning around the country. It sets the, the thresholds really that local authorities then, when they're making decisions, uh, refer to and it, in, in that sense, it's very important. And uh, look, I think there are a lot of the conversation around planning, you know, in the narrative. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Brand it actually isn't quite helpful. Planning, when it's done well, can be really, really beneficial. It means that we get really thriving, successful, sustainable communities that you know people want to live in, that grow well, uh, and are very successful. When planning fails and isn't done well, then that's hugely costly, you know, in, in social mm-hmm. terms. I, I mean, at, at its very worst, when planning is, is done badly, it ultimately ends up with housing that's built uh, eventually getting demolished and having to be replaced because it hasn't been done well. Yeah, or, or mad queues going into retail parks that should never have been located where they are, but it's going back to a time where you could buy planning permission uh, and brown paper envelopes passed hands uh, and uh, that was the process to get planning permission. Yeah, uh, but, but you see, you've just touched on a good point there. I, I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of town centres were damaged quite badly by planning permissions for large kind of out-of-town retail uh, centres, whereas when that's done much better, you know, the larger retail centres are integrated with town centres and, uh, you know, supports them and, and brings business into towns. And, you know, it, it might be in the edge of the town centre, but they complement each other. Whereas when it's put way out, uh, it actually undermines uh, towns and villages and, you know, creates its own, own problems. And that's, you know, that's all about doing planning well. Uh, and like I, certainly in, in my time as a public representative, you see in, in housing estates where a new development where the planning is done well, the areas really thrive. You know, people want to move there, people stay there. Mm. But the opposite, the opposite can absolutely happen as well when facilities aren't put in. When you don't get yeah. even small things like playgrounds, you mm. don't get places for you know facilities for the community. That has a huge cost and huge negative impact. Yeah, no shops, no schools, no playgrounds, no green areas, and uh, you're living on top of what once was a floodplain. We've seen it all happen. Yeah, you know, we, we have absolutely. So uh, I mean, it's incredibly important. So we we absolutely need a lot more more housing, but we need to be well designed, well planned, with amenities, with good facilities, and that can be done. And when you do that, it, it cuts out so many other uh, problems that then develop. It means that you don't have, you know, big policing issues uh, in areas, big issues around social behaviour. You can still obviously get all of those issues, but if you've got good facilities, a community that are able to build around them, if the, you know, to facilitate sports clubs and youth clubs and yeah. scouts and all these different things, that has a has a massive value in, a, in an area, and it can be really, really transformative. And that's what good planning goes. So yeah. I'd be quite concerned this whole conversation almost of as if planning is just a, an obstacle uh, to building housing. It's actually when you do planning well, you get really, really good communities. Well, that's the, the point, isn't it? That is, the, yeah. you're, you're not just building houses. Uh, those houses exactly. should be the foundation for a community. Uh, and um, the likes of floodplains uh, I, I don't know uh, how, how that ever happened given the objections and the local knowledge uh, that was uh, often available to people. Will that local knowledge be uh, available under what's being proposed under the changes to the planning process? Will the local authorities have uh, the same role in planning applications? The local authorities w- will. I, I, I do have a concern though about this talk of and exactly as you say, local knowledge can actually be invaluable because when a developer comes in uh, to an area and you know they hire their different professionals to do reports and stuff, 
the one thing that they're absolutely missing is is local uh, knowledge and they don't know the history of the site they're there, there could be issues around uh, flooding, as you said, but also, you know, just, I, I'm aware of sites where there's been issues in the past around, you know, landslides with water courses running underneath the site, and that creating particular issues. And the local community, funny enough, you know, knows all of that. It has that kind of historical memory, and the local community being able to feed that into the planning process is actually really, really useful for for everyone. Um, and I am concerned about this narrative of, you know, trying to clamp down on the abilities of local communities to feed in. And ultimately, you know, they should have the same right as anybody else that if they feel that there's something uh, has gone wrong in the planning process in terms of, uh, in a legislative sense, that laws have been broken, they should obviously have the same mm. uh, ability as anyone else to, you know, take that to, to the court system. I, I think there is issues, though, about needing to speed all this up and, and you know, we, we do need to do that, do that. And, you know, for example, when judicial reviews are, are taken, it can lead to very long delays. But I think the answer to that is rather than trying to block people's access to the courts is to make sure that we've much quicker processes there, much quicker decisions. I think the idea of a, you know, a dedicated planning court uh, is, a, is a good one, so it builds up experience and, and expertise and it can see, you know, decide on cases much quicker. And I th- think that would be very helpful in terms of us getting delivery of more housing that we do need. And this brings us to the issue of residents associations or non-governmental organisations uh, for that matter taking objections to planning applications uh, and we've heard it said that a few cake sales uh, will raise a- enough money to take a judicial review. Uh, I think uh, I read it t- costs in the region of 15000 uh, but it's not always that cheap. And you take a, a group like the Northeast Pile and Pressure Campaign that's been campaigning against the North-South Interconnector for probably 15 years at this stage. Uh, and they've literally raised millions uh, to fight through the planning process. Uh, would groups like that be prohibited from taking objections? Yeah, we haven't seen, seen the detail yet. But, I mean, just to say, anyone who takes a judicial view is a massive undertaking certainly not an issue of, you know, a few cake sales. The uh, potential financial exposure uh, for any uh, communities or residents groups that do that is, is, you know, much more. You could be looking at, they could be looking at 15,000 to get their initial piece of advice or whatever, but you could be running into, you know, 100,000 or, or plus of the day of, you know, a few cake sales. It's massively stressful for people to do that as well. Uh, going through that process, something that people are very reluctant to do for, for obvious reasons. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, that kind of commentary that we've had, I, I don't think is terribly helpful. I, I think as well, a lot of judicial reviews, and the figures bear this out in the last few years, arose from that strategic housing development process where local authorities were bypassed. And literally, communities were told, well, there is no appeals process. Uh, to this, if you don't like a decision, the only way you can appeal it is by taking a judicial review. So that whole process was really kind of, you know, f- encouraging people to take judicial reviews, if, if, and it was the only mechanism of, of appeal for people. Uh, I mm. think that, you know, probably, you know, that very flawed legislation that is now withdrawn, uh, and you know, that legislation was lobbied for by some of the larger developers saying, look, this is going to speed up the planning process and actually mm. get backfired and slowed it down. So it has, there has to be care on any of these new proposals as well. You know, yeah, but, 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 but is there a potential under what's being proposed for groups uh, like uh, any PPC uh, to be prohibited from taking restrictions? Or um, if I think of uh, the slain bypass, it's probably a, a very good example because there was 
huge interest in that, not just here, but internationally, because Bruna Boinia is a UNESCO heritage site. Uh, could groups from outside of this country come in and take a, a judicial review? Uh, if, or, or, or how does that tally with this idea that they can only be taken by individuals? Yeah, well, I, I mean, they're talking about yeah, they're, they're talking about you know trying to bar uh, residents, uh, groups from doing this are saying they'd have to be set up for a certain number of years and have you know be set up maybe as a company and all this sort of stuff for for a number of years to, to try and block uh, groups from doing this. But uh, see, I think the fundamental point is if you get planning right, then a group that is taking a judicial review isn't going to win the, the case. They only win it when there's been breaches of the law mm-hmm. uh, found. So it'd be better. And actually, a lot of the cases where there's been successful judicial reviews in the last number of years have been on the same uh, mistakes that were made by and Borpanol, the same breaches uh, of planning law again and again. So it would be better to fix these, get the processes right. Uh, and then that would reduce conflict. But really, the best way to reduce conflict here is actually to do early engagement uh, with communities and residents. And that, that's shown when you do that and you do that well, uh, then you can come up with proposals that take on board, you know, legitimate uh, concerns. And then you're, you're more likely to be able to get through the planning process much, much quicker. So mm-hmm. early engagement is the way to do this rather than, uh, you know, things being uh, settled through, through court cases later on. But I, I don't think, look, there, you know, if there's an attempt to block people's access to the courts, that will probably end up uh, being challenged as well. And that could lead to more delays. So, uh, you know, these attempts to often kind of, you know, short circuit things can actually end up backfiring and, and leading to greater delays. Uh, so really, the, the government needs to think about that very carefully. Uh, before proceeding on something that actually might end up backfiring and creating additional delays. Okay, we'll leave it there for at the moment, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, today. Keen O'Callaghan is uh, the Social Democrats' spokesperson on housing. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we're all proud Europeans, aren't we? Well... We certainly are, according uh, to a survey uh, that has uh, just been released. Uh, the latest Eurobarometer survey says uh, that 92% of Irish people believe that Ireland has benefited from being a member of the EU. Let's speak uh, to MEP Fine Gael's Colin Markey, who's on the line, and a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. What is it, do you think, that makes us such proud Europeans? Well, just before you do start, Michael, I just do want to mention the Irish peacekeeper who died in the Lebanon, and indeed the other people who were injured. I think it's like, I think everyone is... Is, is if you like thinking of, of the family this morning of the, the peacekeeper's life was lost I think you know these people go out to do the, their best in terms of maintaining peace and that's the price to pay so I think we shouldn't I shouldn't start this morning without remembering that and hopefully those who are injured will be make a full recovery yeah. like sometimes we think of those who die but equally those who m- may have life-changing injuries too you just don't know so absolutely and as we've been hearing uh, there's people listening locally uh, who will be very close uh, to this uh, and i'm sure those comments will be appreciated thanks for that okay uh, can i um, turn to this uh, euro barometer survey and uh, why it is uh, that we are such proud europeans I don't know. It seems to come up the whole time. We'd pretty much be the most 
we come up top ranking across Europe in, in most of these surveys. There was a survey earlier in the year about just sentiment towards Europe and we were 71% of Irish people were positive in that one as well. So look, it says that we've 92% support for it and the European average is 72. So clearly we are more positive than others. I think there's a recognition probably over the years, certainly from an in- infrastructure perspective, let's say roads and things like that, that Ireland has benefited well out of it. And then the, the, from, I suppose, the agriculture side in terms of the common agricultural policy as well. But uh, probably on a more broader level, the whole scenario regards standards in Ireland. Like, I think an awful lot of the standards we get come from Europe and people recognise that. I, uh, people often talk about when you go right back to the start, uh, like Ireland joined the EU in 72 and one of the things it had to do to join the EU, EU was to remove the marriage ban and, and getting a job or, or, or holding or women holding a job when they were married like and it made it was Europe that caused us to lift that and if you follow that through right through over the years that really uh, an awful lot of the, the good standards that we have had in Ireland over the years were driven by European directives or European legislation and that's that's probably another element of it. Mm. I suppose then beyond that, the access to the common market. And the other, and certainly, we wouldn't see it as much in Ireland, but certainly across Europe, there's a real sense that Europe eh, has maintained peace across Europe over, like, eh, from, since the Second World War, that everyone worked together rather than diverge in different directions. Okay, and we'll come back that, to that. That, in a, would, that would be valued. We'll come back to that in a, a, a moment. Uh, but when it comes to agriculture and uh, the roads, the infrastructure and the investment uh, that we benefited uh, from in this country, we had Ursula von der Leyen give a, an address to the Oireachtas in the last couple of weeks and she was told that that paled into comparison uh, when you think about what we lost because of how the Irish fishing, fishing industry has been decimated. Well, certainly, they like Ireland would have probably gave a lot, uh, well, gave access to to fisheries over the years, and I think in more recent times we've done we've been doing work to try and redress. I suppose not so much Europe, but Norway has been acting unilaterally in the last uh, couple of years in terms of accessing fish quotas, and they've just essentially take um, gone for grabbed fisheries, particularly in blue whiting. I suppose if you look at that in the overall context, we may have had a very large fishing area. But as a small country on the periphery of Europe, if we weren't part of Europe, we probably would have had difficulty even policing that area as well. So the idea that that fisheries would have been there and we would have been able to keep everybody out probably wasn't realistic. Like if you look at, if you even look at the UK post-Brexit, like when the when the UK pulled out of the EU, like the Belgians and the French and the the Dutch all had established fishing rights in a British waters that that predated EU membership. So those type of scenarios would apply to Ireland as well. But but definitely, I think there's a need on the fishery side, and it's something I've been pushing strong mm. in the last twelve months or so that a uh, that Ireland gets its fair share of fisheries. Like apart from the situation with Norway, even in agreements that were we were trying to broker with Norway, yeah. they, like it was the, the French, the the Spanish, the, the Germans, and the Dutch that were benefiting from it, and Ireland wasn't, despite the fact that the whole debate was about Irish waters. So we, we saw you don't think you'd win that argument, though, with Irish fishermen, though, do you? I don't think, look, mm. I don't think you get Irish fishermen. Look, I, I have these discussions with Irish fishermen the whole time, and mm. I think if we start to argue the arguments of the past, we'll get nowhere. But if we start to argue the pa- arguments at the moment where there are opportunities to be won and there are opportunities where we can we can kind of push back mm. both at European level, but also... Other OK, but the fishermen would argue that they got more than they gave uh, and they left us with a uh, uh, housing and homelessness crisis. 
Well, I don't know that uh, Europe has left us with a housing and homeless crisis. I think uh, the housing and homeless crisis came a lot due to the, the downturn 10 years ago. And, they, they, they and the attitude of uh, the European uh, Union uh, and uh, the efforts uh, that the Irish government uh, tried to take uh, and how Jean-Claude Trichet told Michael Noonan at one stage that a, a bomb would go off in Dublin if the Irish government burnt the bondholders. If the Irish government had burnt the bondholders, we wouldn't have had the level of debts that we had, we wouldn't have had the recession that we have, and we wouldn't have the housing crisis that we have now. But if you look at the situation when you go back to when the euro was established and how interest rates dropped from what was Previously, that was like anywhere up between 10 and 20 percent at the worst of times, and maybe down to 7 or 8 percent. They dropped uh, they, they, anything from 3 to 7 or 8 percent due to the stability that was brought, brought by us by joining the euro. So I think like there's, there's two ways you can look at it. You can talk about burning the bondholders, mm. but if we hadn't been part of the But euro, that's what the finance, the Fine Gael finance minister it's, it's, wanted to do, but the European yeah. Union said, no, it's tar and feathers for the Irish and uh, left us uh, with years of austerity. But I think in fairness to the fact that we were part of the euro brought those lower interest rates to begin with. And we benefited from those lower interest rates for many years in advance of that. I do accept that Ireland did did pay, absolutely, that Ireland paid a very significant penalty. And I suppose the the economy in terms of, certainly not on the housing side, but but the rest of the economy did bounce back based on the, the performance of the government and how it managed that situation. But but yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Ireland did Pay, pay a significant penalty, but in fairness, the the figures that are there on the on the on the surveys would suggest that people don't necessarily see that as they see they see the benefits too that Europe brought. Okay, uh, is Europe taking the right uh, approach in the Ukrainian war that instead of looking to broker peace, uh, it's arming one side of the conflict? Well, I think if you if you broker peace as things have stood, it basically then it rewards somebody, the aggressor, for for trying to make a land grab and to to take a part of a sovereign country. So, I think to try and broker peace in that scenario isn't isn't perhaps realistic. And like, it's very hard to know how, how, at what stage. At some stage, you may have to sit down and see where to go, but. I think in the in the in the approach of Russia, it's very hard to try and broker peace when someone okay. has been that aggressive when it's taken on a a, a, country, a sovereign country. And so is the European if, Union. If you, if you if you accept that and if you allow Russia make a gain out of that, that's only one step towards a further problem down the road. Okay, so that's, is that's, that's, it, it's the thin edge of the wedge. Is the European Union, if you take that argument to its logical conclusion, is the European Union rewarding Israel for a land grab in a sovereign country? I wouldn't say European Union is. Uh, I suppose the, the difference between Ukraine and um, Israel, uh, to be honest about it, is that probably people are more focused about the fact that it's on the European continent. Well, I, I was comparing. Well, I, don't, I, I was comparing I, I don't, Russia with I, Israel. I, yeah, I know that, but I mean the, the Russian aggression is on the European continent. That's that's probably mm. a concern that that focuses mind. And the Israeli aggression more. is in Palestine. Absolutely, and I think any aggression anywhere is unacceptable. And I think uh, perhaps, and this is the whole point about Europe, and it's a big debate in Europe at the moment, is where, whether or not Europe should have a stronger military presence or whether Europe should be more responsive on the international uh, international uh, stage, if you like, from a military perspective. But then when you look at other countries, the likes of America, 
or Russia what they've done in those situations. I don't think they've made a co- positive contribution. Like the, the Israeli situation is is equally driven very much by by the US, and I don't think being let's say militarily proactive on the world stage solves a lot of problems. I don't think it does. I know I accept your scenarios regards Ukraine that they, if you like, Europe is back on one side of the scenario in Ukraine, but it's not actually putting its own boots on the ground. It is supporting a sovereign and sovereign nation to try and protect itself. Yeah. And I think that's different from actually being proactive like, the, like the, the Americans or the Russians would have been over the years in terms of putting their military on the ground in other countries. And I think that's, that's a, a fundamental step forward that I don't know that Europe is prepared to take because if you get into that, you get, you get sucked into all sorts of situations. Is the parliament corrupt to the core? I wouldn't think so at all. I, 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 like outside of the, the the situation that we've experienced this week, which is absolutely shocking. But beyond that, I certainly wouldn't have had any evidence of anything else happening. And certainly, uh, there would have to be a, a major review of where things are at to make sure there isn't more of the same. But but mm. I wouldn't like it, it. You don't know that something else won't turn up. But certainly, in my experience of it, I wouldn't think that there's corruption like that at all. Like, mm. I think most people are very much in favour of uh, this being... Everybody is in favour of this being reviewed and seen yeah. as something like it to make sure it can't happen again. Have you ever been made uh, questionable offers like we offered tickets to the World Cup? No, I wasn't. And I, neither neither as a, an MEP or I, when I was in... In politics at a local level either, I never was, and I'm delighted I haven't been. Well, I don't really care if I Mm -hmm. hadn't been, because I just wouldn't be taking it. It's as simple as that. But, uh, no, I I would have seen no evidence of it. I think certainly, Mm -hmm. sort of, I suppose I joined, I started in politics in 2009, and certainly, uh, I suppose, in Ireland in particular, there was such a focus on on, uh, that things Mm -hmm. of that nature prior to that, that I think it was very much something that, that didn't happen certainly in my time. And any, okay, any, but there is this focus on it. I talk to. Yeah. I, I mean, I mm. talk to. As, uh, I, I hear no evidence of it anywhere else either. All right, but well, there is certainly evidence of, of corruption and bags oh, and bags of money, uh, not just money, World Cup tickets, all sorts of it's things. Shocking. Free overseas on. trips to the Gulf states, uh, valuable hospitality being offered to people, trips to Qatar, uh, bottles of fer- perfume, and all sorts of valuable things being offered to MEPs. And th- this focus uh, has led to the five Fidegale MPs. Uh, announcing that uh, you're going to be more transparent uh, in uh, how you receive money and how it's spent. No, well, that, that just only relates to the allocations you get from the Parliament and how they are spent. Like, at the end of the day, they are put into, like, put into specific accounts and managed out of those specific accounts. So there's, there's no such thing as, as I, like, that has absolutely nothing to do with anything, like, from, from third parties. Like, uh, none of us have, well, I certainly haven't received mm. anything from any third party. And but you're, go, you're, you're, right. you're going to, uh, right. to declare right. how your expense, when you claim expenses, you're, you're, you're going to, uh, list what you've spent that on. Yeah, there's there's mm. a there's a voluntary scenario within the parliament whereby you list the, the different categories of things you you spend things you spend mm. on, and we're more than happy to do that. To the, whatever, like to the full to the full degree of what the disclosure is required or or, or voluntarily uh, offered to us to, to do that, we we're more than happy to do it because I think you just you you just have to be wholly transparent in in all of these matters and and. 
obviously we've nothing to hide so I'm more than happy to do it to, okay. to demonstrate that we've nothing to hide OK we have to leave there thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning that is Fine Gael's Colin Markey who is a member of the European Parliament Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The Joint Oireachtas Committee on Justice published two reports yesterday, two very significant uh, reports uh, for that matter. One on how minorities engage with uh, the judicial system and a second report then on how people are dealt with if they're found to be in possession of drugs that they have for their own personal use. Let's speak to the chair of uh, that committee, Fianna Fáil TD, James Lawless, who's on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I take it there's a lot of crossover in uh, the reports in that uh, the people that you're talking about in both reports are interlinked, I would imagine, to some degree. But can we start by talking about uh, the report on possession of drugs for personal use? The committee is suggesting that that would be decriminalised. How did you come to that conclusion? Uh, good, good morning, Michael, and your listeners, and uh, thanks for having me on the programme. We produced, as you say, two reports uh, we published yesterday. We have more reports coming in the year. We do a lot of work over the uh, term, and towards the end of the term, we, we, we sort of put our work out there. So the decriminalisation of drugs is one of the findings that we came to. We had hearings on this about six months ago, and we invited in medical people, doctors, uh, campaigners, uh, people that work in addiction services, uh, and I suppose expert witnesses to ask what their opinion was of current policy. Uh, We also had a governor from Portugal uh, who manages the drugs policy for Lisbon, and they have recently decriminalised, well actually they've done it a few years now, and they have seen lower crime rates, they have seen better... um, management of the situation. Uh, the United States is moving that way with the Biden administration. Uh, so across the world, the old kind of war on drugs, I suppose, really seem to have failed uh, as a criminal justice exercise. Uh, and the move is saying, well, look, it's not necessarily something that's legal. It's not something that people are going to promote. There are health issues and, and potentially addiction issues. But we don't believe that arresting somebody, bringing them to court, going through the whole criminal justice system um, is proportionate uh, or, or actually a good way to treat it. Um, so that's one of our findings from yesterday. So I suppose in summary we said we should the, the state should accelerate the decriminalisation process because that's already in, uh, underway. Uh, we should consider whether a regulatory model uh, is appropriate. So what that would mean is that in the same way as if you buy a unit of alcohol uh, in an off-license or indeed in a, in a, in a pub, uh, you know what you're getting. It's measured, it's sampled, there's a certain quantity, uh, there's a certain uh, check done to make sure that it is what it's supposed to be. It's no stronger or weaker than it's supposed to be. So regulation would sort of bring that sort of testing uh, approach to uh, what are currently illegal drugs. Uh, and then thirdly, that we, there should be investment in treatment centres, uh, addiction centres, people struggling with substance abuse. Because no more than alcohol, uh, or indeed some, some illegal drugs, people do, of course. Some mm. people, not everybody, but, but some people do have very serious difficulties uh, arising from use of substances. You're not very far off recommending legalising drugs. Um, no, I suppose we're not. I, suppose I made a point yesterday at the launch um, at 10.30am in any town or village in Ireland. Uh, you can walk into off the street and buy a pint or you can even buy a whiskey or you can even buy a boat uh, should you wish to. Uh, and you can pretty much sit there for the day mm. and consume them. Uh, you may uh, enjoy yourself or you may not. You may go home, you may have difficulties, you, you may have a problem to be frank. Uh, or you might simply be having uh, a recreational chat with a friend. Mm. Um, and, and I think really the difference between alcohol and some other drugs in some ways is just an accident of history. Um, so in the same way that 
a lot of things are not good for you. Red meat, perhaps, or alcohol, perhaps aren't always good for you. People, some people enjoy them in moderation. Uh, and perhaps the, a consistent approach should be brought to bear, uh, which would include some of the softer, uh, what might be considered recreational drugs. Okay. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you were to decriminalise drugs for personal use and you were stopped then by a, a member of Garda Síochána who found you to be in possession of cocaine, uh, the Garda could take that drug off you and maybe uh, advise uh, that you see addiction services or point you in that direction or something like well, that. Uh, that's exactly what they do in Portugal, yeah. So yeah, if what okay. they have is sort of an administrative mm. sanction rather than a criminal sanction. So the state isn't condoning this. The state isn't saying this is a good thing that you should be doing. Mm. Actually, there is a fine or there is a, a sanction in the same way as if you throw litter on the street or you know, perhaps some road traffic offences. Um, but it's not going to see you locked mm. up. It's not going to see you brought before a court. Okay. Um, but you will be issued with a ticket um, and there will be a referral to what's called, in Portugal, they call the dissuasion service. But effectively, it's a substance abuse service to, to get okay. some kind of counselling uh, or treatment so that people will be issued. Okay, uh, I was uh, just wondering then the difference between that and bringing in regulations uh, on these drugs because uh, in the first uh, scenario that I outlined to you, the cocaine could be uh, full of strychnine or whatever else it's been mixed with. Uh, but uh, you'd be buying it off the dealers uh, and the dealers uh, would be shooting each other and all of that stuff would continue. Uh, when you're talking about uh, regulations of uh, this, uh, it wouldn't be full of strychnine uh, or any other banned substance. Uh, it would be of uh, an agreed strength under the regulations, as you say. It couldn't suddenly blow your mind off uh, or... Um, okay, yeah or kill you uh, um, but if you're introducing regulations like that you're involved in uh, the uh, manufacturing or the production of, of these products uh, and the guardian presume would be able to take it off you and to all intents and purposes that would be legalising the substances would it not? Yeah so, so, so that's something we put out there as a possible next phase so the first stage is to uh, complete the decriminalisation process, and that was it would involve, you know, that the Guardian would not be in hot pursuit, as it were, um, but there would still be ministerial sanctions and, and referral services. We said that the, the state should consider if that model is followed, and these are the recommendations, you know, it goes to government next, and they have to decide what to do with these recommendations, if they wish to implement all or, or, or some or, or any. Um, but the next stage would be to look at that regulation idea, uh, because as you, as you said, what gets measured gets managed, um, and there will be some quality control uh, and safety checks in that. The other thing I suppose that's important is that there is a citizens' assembly due to convene at this in the new year, and that would be um, obviously a, a random sample of I think it's up to a thousand members of, of society uh, who will consider all these points. And we hope that our report would tie in nicely with that in the sense that it would feed in. We have 22 recommendations coming out of our hearings with the expert witnesses. I think it would be a very good starting point for the citizens' assembly to have a look and say, right, mm. should we go on these uh, down this road? Which ones should we adopt? Which ones should we not? Uh, and we'll get a sense of where society is. Okay. And I think society, by and large, my own sense of it, uh, is that people have, have sort of are ready for this in the sense that people have moved on. And a lot of people would accept that this sort of war on drugs idea hasn't really worked. Uh, crime rates are through the roof in terms of drug crime. As you say, gangsters are shooting each other. They're making astronomical profits out of it. Uh, the state doesn't see any of that. Uh, all it does is pick up the tab for uh, the court uh, bill, the Garda bill. Uh, the and you're, you're saying that would happen, though, in tandem with education, with addiction services yeah, and so absolutely. on. And just on that other report, I think that ties into this because you're also talking about the Garda engaging with youth projects and Garda liaison officers. And it's this holistic approach, is it not? Very much so, yeah. So the other report was about the engagement of minorities with the justice system. Talked about, and there's a very good model of community policing already, and I'm sure uh, they're, they're across me now as well. They're, they're, they're very strong in Kildare. I work with a lot of local uh, community guardians myself. 
and really their role, it, it, it's sort of a st- it's a bit like the old-fashioned Bobby and the Beach, um, but actually it's gone back to I suppose that in the sense that the community police are assigned a particular area, and they get to know the area, and they know who's coming and going. They know the local tidy towns groups, they know the local residence groups, they know the local groups where there you know issues might be issues, local estates where there might be some problems. They get in there, they go to the field days, the community days, get to know the people, you know, they know the families of youngsters in trouble, they can make a call to a parent. Um, I sort of, I suppose, old-fashioned policing, really, but it's actually been formalised in community policing service, uh, and it's working really well. Uh, we also looked at things like juries. So it's often said that juries are not necessarily representative of society because you need people who are available, who can take a few days off work, who are home maybe during the day. Um, and, you know, I suppose in a way it's a self-selecting group. Um, and certainly minorities are not particularly... Uh, well represented on it and, and even people perhaps younger people are not are not because they're more likely to be working okay. etc um, so the whole jury system has to be looked at as well Okay. kind of the representative of the people that are actually coming before it Alright well uh, it feeds into a very big debate that will continue in the new year with the Citizens Assembly thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning uh, Fianna Fáil TD James Lawless who's the chair of uh, the Joint Directors Committee on Justice Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM Yarsh Times reports uh, today that carbon dioxide emissions are, are moving in the wrong direction, that they rose by 5.4% in 2021 when the plan was for them to fall by 4.8%, and that energy-related emissions for this year may hit 6%. Now, this is according uh, to the Annual Energy in Ireland analysis, which has been published by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. Margie McCarthy is a Director of Research and Policy Insights at the SEAI and on the line. Good morning, Margie. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Good morning, Michael. What's driving this? Sure. So, um, and thanks, Michael. Uh, you referenced the Energy in Ireland report, which which really is SEAI presenting the latest data and trends on energy. So, how we're using energy in our homes and businesses, where we're using it and, and how we're fueling it and how much renewable share there is to that energy. And, and as you said, we then track that to the various targets that we've set ourselves at home and through the EU. And one of those targets is through the carbon budget. So as you said, that ambition to decrease our uh, carbon emissions by just over or just under 5%. And so we're genuinely going in the wrong direction with our energy emissions at the moment. And, and what's the key trends to that is at the moment we've uh, really seen a recovery of uh, how we're moving about in, in personal car journeys. Our transport level emissions have significantly increased back to pre-COVID activity levels. And and also we saw um, an increase in the use of coal and oil in our electricity generation due to a somewhat lower wind year in 2021 and the fact that some of our gas-powered electricity was out for maintenance so that meant we had to use a bit more coal and oil and and that's a higher carbon intensity fuel to use so all of those things combined show that we're genuinely going in the wrong direction against the targets that we've set and I think the important thing to recognise there is if we miss a target in one year it doesn't mean oh oh, okay we'll we'll just try and make it again in the next year it's the sum of all those targets Mm. that's important so if we miss it one year it adds to the problem the following year it makes it's, the target even higher that, that, that big challenge becomes an even greater challenge I, I, is it possible to turn around uh, turn it around and how do we do that sure so look 
as I said, the data says that we are behind the curve, but it, it can and will happen if we prioritise and get serious about it. And certainly we know that the government are about to publish the Climate Action Plan 23. So, so government will be rolling out a, a series of plans and actions and supports to, to help motivate and escalate and increase the pace at which we're doing it. But certainly from everybody listening today, there is a role for all of us in this Um for example, I, I know for an extreme cold at the moment, so I know and energy prices are front of mind for everybody. So people are already thinking, whether it's in your home or in your business, what can you do to change? Well, there's an awful lot of resources around there, in particular on SEI.ie, where, where people can look at what are the things that you could start to plan ahead now, even if it's not something you can afford to upgrade your house as of yet maybe starting to plan, well, what are the small things that you could do to, to make a difference? And it's really important to, to to insulate your house and reduce and increase the efficiency, basically. So if, let's say you're an oil fueled home, and we know from the Energy in Ireland report that, that oil is, is a big factor of the energy emissions from, from homes. Um, we, we use about 41% of our energy use in homes is from oil. Um, and so by increasing the insulation of your home, you're going to become more efficient and use less oil in your home. And then ultimately, hopefully, you'll be able to afford moving towards a heat pump, which gets you off um, fossil fuel burning altogether. And, and then also in the Climate Action Plan and hopefully in the not-too-distant future, mm. there will be district heating available for people in, in towns and cities where it'll be more of a plug into a network which is a non-fossil, so it's a renewable-led energy um, network. Mm. So, yeah. and, and has its own problems at times, as we've been hearing recently, unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately, we're actually out of time, Margie, so we have to leave it there. But thank you indeed, Margie McCarthy, Director of Research and Policy Insights at the SEAI. That's it for today. God willing, we'll here for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.